The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Essentially, all of the government's evidence, maybe most of the government's evidence, if not you know, the entirety of it, and certainly what it considers to be its quote-unquote best evidence, was either obtained directly through torture or is tainted in some way by torture. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare. This is the Lawfare Podcast, August 8th, 2023. Just weeks ago, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit upheld the life sentence of a Yemeni national serving out his time at the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. He had appealed this life sentence in part on the grounds that his conviction was based on evidence obtained by torture. Meanwhile, at the Guantanamo Military Commissions, another detainee tried to appeal charges against him on the basis that torture-obtained evidence was used in his referral for trial by the military commissions. But in June, the body that reviews referrals for trials at Guantanamo denied this appeal. He and his co-defendants are currently set to have pretrial hearings in October. All of this is happening despite the fact that in 2022, in a case about a different Guantanamo detainee, the Biden administration's Justice Department committed to a reinterpretation of a key statute that blocks the use of torture-obtained evidence in Guantanamo litigation, and reaffirmed that it would not try to admit statements that the detainee gave while in CIA custody. So how and why is it that torture-obtained evidence still seems to be being used in certain Guantanamo cases? To understand the issues, I spoke to Scott Rehm, Director of Global Policy and Advocacy at the Center for Victims of Torture, and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown Law School. We talked about the history of torture evidence at Gitmo, dove into a few cases in context of the Justice Department's 2022 reinterpretation, and discussed what all this might mean for other Guantanamo detainees moving forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 8th. Can torture evidence be used at Guantanamo Bay? So we're here to talk about some news that torture evidence is still being used in certain parts of Guantanamo proceedings after we saw some promising steps forward last year by the U.S. government to stop doing so. Before we dig into that, I want to remind us of the state of Guantanamo Bay right now by the numbers. Since 2002, when the military commissions were opened by military order by President Bush, there have been about 780 individuals who were detained at the military prison at some point in time. About 750 of them have been transferred, including some recent transfers. So today, 30 remain in custody. Scott, can you tell us a little bit more about who these last 30 are? 
Sure. So there's a process that the Obama administration set up for the executive branch to decide essentially by consensus among agencies with a significant national security function, whether someone at Guantanamo is can be cleared for release, whether they pose a minimal enough threat that they can be transferred out of Guantanamo. 16 of the remaining men have been already cleared for release. That that uh, mechanism is called the periodic review board. So that's 16 of the of the remaining 30. Nine of the men are in what I would describe as active military commission cases, though active is a is a relative term to the commissions given the glacial pace at which they move. And that's nine men across three cases. So five uh, defendants in the 9-11 case, three defendants in another, and and one in, in the third. There is one man who's has pled in the commissions. His plea is somewhat complicated. I would consider his case not active, though he is in the commission process. There is one man serving a life sentence at Guantanamo, uh, the only detainee convicted at trial in the commissions across the 21 plus years that Guantanamo has been open. And then there are three men who continue to be detained indefinitely without Charger trial uh, and have not yet been cleared by the periodic review board process for transfer out. Yeah. And those three are indefinite law of war detainees. Can you give us a little bit of a primer on the difference between the people who are awaiting trial by military commission and the um, folks who are held by the law of war detention? I mean, the basic difference is the three in indefinite detention just haven't been charged in the commission system. They're essentially stuck. I think that's for a number of reasons, uh, including, um, for example, one of them is Abu Zabeda, who's was the first detainee taken into custody in the CIA torture program and whose stories, horrific stories is fairly well known. I think it, there, it is at least to some degree that he remains not cleared and not charged in in order to maintain some degree of ongoing secrecy around his torture. Current torture. No, his what he was subjected to in the in the CIA program. Gotcha. And is it possible that they will eventually be charged. So is this question of torture evidence applicable to these folks in the law of war detention phase? I think it's highly unlikely that anyone else is going to be charged in the commission system. I think it was very surprising and by its timing, seemingly politically motivated that the three Indonesian men charged with the Bali bombing um, and the JW Marriott hotel attack were charged at all. They were charged essentially on the last day of the of the Trump presidency. And I think no one had expected additional charges in the commissions before that. You know, well, two main reasons why I think it's unlikely there'll be those any of those three will be charged. One, to your point, uh, I think 
if the government had sufficient evidence to charge any of them that wasn't clearly obtained through torture, they would have already. And second, I think the Biden administration, I think it's clear to them, at least at the senior political level, that the commissions are a road to nowhere. They're an abject failure. And if effort's going to be put into the commissions, it's got to be in how to wrap them up, not start new ones. Definitely. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get back to the kind of overall Biden promise to, or not yet promise, but what he said in 2021 about wanting to, to close Guantanamo later. But in the meantime, so we're, we're talking about a narrow, probably 10 individuals for whom this kind of recent activity on torture evidence applies um, in your view. So want to narrow the conversation to them. Can you explain the history of what this torture obtained evidence means in Guantanamo proceedings? It kind of might, may strike some people even as a bit of a paradox, like something that is obtained by torture can be, quote unquote, evidence in a case. Can you talk about that term and its history and how it's being used recently? Sure. I, mean, I think it it starts with <clears throat> the foundation for everything Guantanamo, right? I mean, as you said, and I think this is a really important point, the nine defendants in active commission cases are all torture victims. They were all, they were tortured by the CIA. There are several witnesses in those cases that come up in the torture evidence context that we can talk about in a bit as well, who are also tortured either by the CIA or the military. That's not a disputed fact. And also in some ways, not surprising that the torture evidence issue obtains today, because when those men were taken into custody, you know, notwithstanding the executive order you mentioned earlier that President Bush issued that, uh, among other things, provided for military commissions, the objective wasn't to prosecute them, right? The CIA's goal was an ef- misguided effort, I think, to try to obtain information from them through torture. And I think if we're being honest to some degree to exact revenge by torture for 9-11, uh, and we know that th- that's not an opinion, right? We know that because, at least in part, the Senate Intelligence Committee, when it did its oversight investigation um, into the torture program and, and released the 500-page summary of its seven-some-odd-thousand-page oversight report on the program, included a CIA cable sent from the officers who were torturing Abu Zubaydah to their superiors saying, uh, and I think this is worth quoting from, quote, we need to get reasonable assurances that Abu Zubaydah will remain in isolation and incommunicado for the remainder of his life. And the response they got from their superiors essentially said, yes, we agree. It's not to say that prosecution wasn't being talked about at all within the government. It was, it just wasn't with respect to detainees. It was with respect to whether there were ways to avoid the officers who committed the torture from being prosecuted. And CIA lawyers actually asked the attorney general for a formal declination of prosecution in advance. Right. So again, purpose when taking these men into custody, not to prosecute them, at least from the beginning. And so as a result of those two things, 
essentially all of the government's evidence, maybe most of the government's evidence, if not, you know, the entirety of it. And certainly what it considers to be its quote unquote best evidence was either obtained directly through torture or is tainted in some way by torture. And President Bush's executive order, again, to go back to that, sort of anticipates this circumstance by saying explicitly military commissions aren't going to follow the law and rules of federal courts and evidence in the commissions is going to be admissible if a commission judge finds that it has quote unquote probative value to a reasonable person. Now, right. The history of from that executive order to we are now for the commissions is a long one. And, you know, I think probably more than we want to go into depth on here, but suffice it to say, right. The, that original version of the commissions, the Supreme court would strike down Congress would then legislate them in 2006 and would tighten up a little bit the prohibition on using torture obtained evidence. And then Congress would do that again in 2009 and tighten it up a little more, but certainly not solve the problem. Right. So the last time that Congress spoke on the issue was in 2009? Yes. The revised version of the Military Commissions Act. So what did the Biden administration in 2022 promise to do exactly when it comes to the use of evidence obtained by torture? Good question. So there's a lot, there's a lot of seemingly weedsy issues percolating through the military commissions now about whether and how evidence obtained by torture or otherwise tainted by torture can be used. And those issues have been around for a long time. They've come to a head in various ways, in various cases, since the you know the Biden administration took office i think a lot of that has been driven by the commission prosecutors and less so at least for certainly in the current administration by the more senior department of defense department of justice officials i think you know, there's, and we'll get to a specific answer to your question in a second, um, because it is, I think, good evidence that the, you know, kind of more senior political side of the administration understands that torture evidence can't be in, and shouldn't be used in the commissions. So the first place <clears throat> this pops up post Biden administration uh, is in the USVL Nostri, right? The prosecution of um, the man charged with the USS Cole bombing and, and some other uh, attacks on, on various ships. And basically the prosecution uses some statements that Al-Nashir made while he was being tortured in the context of a, of a discovery dispute, right? And they say, well, yes, there's a prohibition in the Military Commissions Act on using torture-obtained evidence, torture-obtained statements, for any reason in a military commission, but that doesn't apply because it only means a trial in a military commission. The words at trial aren't anywhere in that statute, but prosecution says you should read it in judge. Judge agrees, I think in, a, in an astonishing decision, frankly, and the case goes to the DC circuit, right? It actually, it goes through the court of military commission review first, where the government withdraws using the statements, but doesn't say, you know, we repudiate our legal theory. Like, right, we still think 
we could have used these. We're just saying we're not going to anymore for purposes of you court of military commission review deciding this issue. So then ends up at the DC circuit. And that's where I think this issue for the first time really lands squarely in the lap of those more senior administration officials, because now the Department of Justice is on the hook before the DC circuit to defend the legal argument that commission prosecutors made in the first instance. And to its credit, it decides not to do it, right? I mean, it says explicitly in a brief to the court, right? We've revisited our view of the church evidence prohibition, the, the statutory prohibition in the Military Commissions Act. And we think it applies at every stage of the case. We think it bars anyone's torture obtained statements from being used at all stages of the case. And we're not going to do it anymore. Actually, we're, the government explicitly says we're not going to try to use any of Nashri's statements he made at any time while he was in CIA custody, right? Which is, a, I think, a really important step forward. Right. Absolutely. So just to explicitly name what we're talking about, what the Biden administration did in 2022 was reinterpret 10 U.S.C. Section 948RA, which is a part of the Military Commissions Act. It said that it believes Section 948RA entails that torture-obtained evidence can't be used in any stage of a military commission case, which, again, is the special trial procedure for Guantanamo detainees. This is what the government said in its brief. The government has reconsidered its interpretation of Section 948RA and, as a result of that review, has concluded that Section 948RA applies to all stages of a military commission case, including pretrial proceedings. In accordance with that conclusion, the government will not seek admission at any stage of the proceedings of any of petitioner's statements while he was in CIA custody, and petitioner here being al-Nashri. The problem with it was it essentially mooted the issue before the D.C. Circuit, and then it was left to rest there. And because it was left to rest there, the issue remains unresolved in a bunch of other cases. Right. Can we can we get into the legal weeds for a moment on the resting issue? So why wasn't it that in that moment in the Nishiri case, when the Biden administration said that it sees it sees the prohibition as a categorical one. And why didn't it apply to more cases than just this one? Well, I think is it should have been as, and still should be as a matter of how the administration litigates the cases. Right. But because of the position that DOJ took in Nashri, the DC circuit said, well, we don't have to decide the issue anymore. Right. Cause the government's, essentially promised that it interprets the statute the right way and it's not going to use this information anymore. Had it been binding then in a way that was really effective across other commission cases, anytime this issue came up, the you know the government would have jumped in and said affirmatively, you know, we have our revised interpretation of this statute 
And wherever torture evidence may be at issue, and we can get into, you know, the specific cases, but whether it's there was some evidence used to, that was obtained by torture, you know, to base charges against one of the defendants, or there was evidence used um, that was obtained by torture to sentence one of the defendants. Now that, you know, those things happened before the government took its new position. But what the government could have done in those cases is said, yes, we, you know, we object to both of those things. So let's agree that the person whose sentence was based in part on torture is resentenced. Let's agree that the person who was charged on the basis of torture will withdraw the charges and, and recharge them, right? But instead, in those cases, what the government so far has done is sort of sidestep the issue, argue that you can avoid it on procedural grounds or not weigh in one way or the other. Um, and because the only the only way that the, the government's promise has been implemented is in Nashri's case, as opposed to, again, say, a matter of department-wide policy or, you know, or the government wanting, you know, and, and sort of facilitating the DC circuit making a decision on the issue. It hasn't stuck in all those other cases the way it should. So the way that the government left it in Nashiri is essentially saying something that it would then have to kind of implement in its own actions rather than the court being the one to say, we have decided. And so moving forward, this is binding. Is that accurate? It's like the onus is on the way that the government is going to continue in the other cases, as opposed to being definitively, this is the end, no more questions about it. I mean, there's certainly a reasonable universe in which any court looking at this issue, whether military commission or federal court going forward, would look at the government's position in Nashri and say, well, government and defendant or a government and petitioner agree on the meaning of the law. So that sort of resolves that part of the issue, right? But at least in the commissions, that's, that is exactly the opposite of what has happened. And in one of the more recent Court of Military Commission review decisions, which came out after the government has switched, had switched its position in Nashri. Uh, and this is the USV Nerjaman, who's otherwise known as, as Hambali. The Hambali case where I mentioned this previously, he was charged on the basis of at least some information that was obtained by torture. Both the military commission judge and the court of military commission review say in their decisions, yes, we know the government switched its position on the statutory bar on torture obtained evidence. And we know that the government said that that bar applies at all stages of a military commission proceeding, but they said that in another case and a, we don't necessarily know that, they believe it applies in this case and to this circumstance, referring charges against a detainee versus the discovery dispute that was at issue in Al Nasri. And even if they do, we, Military Commission Judge, Court of Military Commission Review, think that's wrong. We think the original decision by a Military Commission Judge in Al Nasri's case that this statute only prohibits using torture-obtained evidence at trial is the right answer. And now that's 
law across all of the military commission cases, which is potentially huge implications. Right. And you wrote about this for Lawfare a few weeks ago about how this is essentially controlling law now. Can you explain how it's possible, again, for DOJ to hold this view or the Biden administration to hold this view and then the military commissions to act in a different way? Can you give us the history of the the different jurisdictions? I mean, a good chunk of this is just more evidence of how broken the military commission system is, right? In a, you know, I think a legitimate, well-settled legal system when both parties affirmatively agree on an issue and tell the court we agree on an issue, particularly one as sort of grave and weighty as torture, you're hard-pressed to see a judge saying, no, let's reopen that issue, right? Which is essentially what the military commissions have done. Now, had the government in Hambali's case really pressed with the commission judge or the court of military commission review, the point that it did agree with now, again, Hambali, previously Nashri, that the statute barred the use of this evidence, you know, again, in Nashri's case, you know, I think this is another place where what's happening in the commission system and what commission prosecutors are doing seems to me to be inconsistent with where the more kind of senior administration officials stand. So I don't know if that's a function, you know, of a need for greater oversight or what, but, you know, that's sort of part of the reason we are where we are. But you're saying that that statement really should apply to the behaviors of the military commissions as well, insofar as the government has said that it wouldn't want to seek admission at any level of or stage of proceedings. Yes, it just it. I, what's the rationale behind a judge saying we understand that both parties interpret the statute exactly the way the statute on its face is written, and to preclude evidence obtained by torture at any stage, but we're going to put that agreement aside and breathe new life into an issue that no longer exists, right? I think, you know, that's essentially what the military commissions have done. And it's not, I mean, it's not just the obviously wrong decision on the law. It's nonsensical in, in many ways. So I think that's the military commission side of things. The government side of things, as I said before, is, well, what other steps could it have taken beyond what it said in Nashri's case to try to, maybe it's Im- impossible to entirely avoid the commissions sort of going off the rails the way they just did with these decisions, but at least you know minimize the possibility that they might by taking more affirmative steps in these other cases to, to make sure that, you know, its commitment is equally sort of enforceable in, in those other cases. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So in addition to the issue of different levels of execution when it comes to the government's reinterpretation of Section 948RA, again, because of the different actors at each stage of Guantanamo litigation, from the military commissions, prosecutors, to the Justice Department lawyers, who might act differently from one another, it also strikes me that there might be a temporal question about the Section 948RA reinterpretation. Namely, if the government said in 2022 that they wouldn't try and seek to admit things on the basis of torture-obtained evidence moving forward, what might that mean in terms of, say, someone who was already sentenced on the basis of torture-obtained evidence? I'm thinking specifically about Al-Balul and what happened on July 25th at the D.C. Circuit with his case. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened there? The overarching principle on this is if the government is recognizing that in these cases we're talking about evidence obtained by torture, which the government is recognizing, and and they are recognizing that the Military Commissions Act and this provision in particular – bars the use of evidence obtained by torture in any circumstance, then like the temporal question shouldn't really matter, right? With respect to, you know, the government taking affirmative steps to make sure that evidence being used isn't being used in any way. And so that's both Al Balul, uh, the case you just mentioned, who's the only detainee who was convicted at trial by a military commission. And when he was sentenced, he's sentenced to life in, in, in prison and is serving that sentence now at Guantanamo. That sentence was based, again, at least in part, on interrogation reports from his own torture. Right. So Balul has challenged his 
sentence on background and, and a bunch of others. And that challenge made its way up to the DC circuit and the DC circuit ruled on it just a few weeks ago. Um, and with respect to the argument around torture obtained evidence being part of the factual record on which he was sentenced, a large part, the court essentially said, you raised the argument too late, so you forfeit it. And the government's position before the DC circuit was DC circuit, you should duck this issue on procedural grounds. You should find that Balul has forfeited it. Right. So I think that's a very good example of a choice the government had with respect to how forceful it wants to be around its new revised interpretation of the law. Right. It could have said we join in Balul's request for a resentencing hearing and we're going to make sure he's resentenced on whatever the factual record is left after we're, after we strip out anything that's plausibly torture obtained evidence. But it didn't do that, right? It could have tried to facilitate the DC circuit ruling on the scope of the torture evidence prohibition in the Military Commissions Act so that there would be binding DC circuit precedent, but it didn't do that either. And so again, we have one of these cases work its way up all the way through the DC circuit without any decision on this issue. And it's the same thing that's now happening in Hambali's case, right? Who again, charges against him in the military commissions referred on the basis in part of torture obtained evidence litigating it, you know, up through the military commission system, you know, got these sort of crazy military commission judge and court of military commission review rulings that, that we've talked about. And I think this is now headed to the DC circuit. Also, it's not there yet, but I, I'd be surprised if it's not there soon. And it's another, so this is another one of those opportunities, right? It, is the government going to take affirmative steps to, you know, not just make sure it's, it's not violating the statute going forward, but to cure those violations in the past. And we'll see. To be clear, the DC circuit said in its July 25th decision on the resentencing request from Abulul that he couldn't raise the objection to torture evidence even after this revisiting of the, the statute against the use of torture evidence, he couldn't raise it now because he hadn't done so in prior moments when he was appealing to, albeit not the DC circuit, it was the um, CMCR at the time. Is this normal? Is this just the way that in general, when you want to raise something, you have to do it on initial appeal? Or is this specifically a DC circuit decision that has to do with the way it's interpreting the Biden administration's interpretation of 948R? I don't think it's un, as a broader matter. I don't think it's unusual, certainly not for the government to make arguments in, in any case around, you know, kind of trying to duck questions on procedural grounds that don't, that, when there's, uh, you know, an opportunity to duck 
questions on procedural grounds that are controversial in some way, shape, or form. Now, this shouldn't be controversial because of, you know, the government and and all these defendants share the same position. But, you know, again, I think not unusual is a matter of general practice. And then not unusual, similarly for the court, you know, where there's a, a, you know, arguable procedural reason not to have to decide the issue, to not decide the issue. And so that, you know, I think that's kind of as a matter of mechanics, how we got where we got in Belul. But again, right, that wasn't the government's only choice. It could have said many other things other than DC Circuit, you shouldn't decide this issue because Belul didn't raise it soon enough, but it chose not to. Right. And we don't know exactly why he didn't raise it earlier, do we, based on court documents or otherwise? Uh, I'm not aware of why he didn't raise it earlier, but I'm sure his his counsel could answer that question. So what is this nebulous committing but not acting on this promise to stop using torture evidence mean for potentially the rest of the Guantanamo detainees who await trial? Do they need to now proactively try and appeal this? Are they going to have to wait until the next moment in their trial, whatever point in their proceedings they may be in to raise the issue? Or what should, what might they be doing? Or might they be thinking about how to respond to the the recent decisions in other cases? Yeah, I mean, I, the issue is already, you know, sort of live in various ways in the, in, you know, Nashri's case, Hambali's case, you know, the rules as, as we've talked about. So that really leaves the the 9-11 case, which is stalled, might be the most generous description. The the big torture evidence question in that case is whether the statements that the defendants gave to the government when they got to Guantanamo in 2006 can be used against them in their prosecution. And those are sometimes referred to as the clean team statements. Basically, defendants were tortured at the black sites provided a whole bunch of information, were brought to Guantanamo, asked all the same questions, provided some of the same information. And the government's claim is, well, that, you know, those those second set of statements are not obtained through torture or tainted by torture. We could talk about the, you know, the, the legitimacy of that argument if you want. Um, but the implications of, you know, of the statute that prohibits torture obtained evidence, again, currently, right, the law across the commission cases is that would only apply at trial, means that, you know, those statements could be used in any proceeding leading up to trial in the 9-11 case, right? So is the government going to step in if the 9-11 case ever moves, you know, forward far enough for this to be, you know, a, a live um, an immediate issue. Is the government going to step in and say, no, we agree this information can't be used here. We promised that, you know, the statute bars all of that information. And so, you know, we're, we, assuming the defendants would object to it, we agree with the defendants. But it needs to be doing that right now on a case by case basis because there's, again, A, no binding decision that would require it. And B, the government didn't 
after it, it revisited its position in Nashri, then go back and institutionalize it in some other way, whether that's policy guidance, whether that's amending what's called the manual for military commissions, which provides, you know, the more specific rules for military commissions, didn't take those extra steps. So again, now it's a case by case issue and with significant implications for all of those, those chargemen. You know, the question there right now is, you know, less anything, you know, pre-trial question specific and more is the administration going to sign off on pleading the case out, which is something that the defendants want to do. It's something that the military commission prosecutors want to do, right? So the very rare agreement between those two sets of actors, um, but that requires senior political level sign off for a variety of reasons from the administration hasn't gotten it. Yeah. So really the, like this issue should not end up being litigated anymore in any way, shape or form in the 9-11 case, because the 9-11 case should go away and can go away. Just requires the administration to take a minimally courageous step forward and get it done. So yeah, in, in context of the broader effort to, as you say, close out these cases, um, maybe through pleas, and in general, the Biden administration's statement that he was interested in closing Guantanamo, does the 948R revisiting in some really insidious way hinder that, like make it a little bit more procedurally like lengthy in terms of the closing out of these cases, do you think? Or, I mean, you, you say that there's an easy out. Um, how How likely is it that that easy out is going to be taken? And in fact, do you think it might just lengthen instead? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like I, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't have described this way, but it, I don't think it's easy, right. To plead the cases out, but it's certainly possible. And I think, you know, in the, in the nine 11 case, there's plenty of agreement, you know, between the parties to get there. I think this is certainly doable in, the other cases as well. I don't think this, the torture evidence question should lengthen the cases at all. I mean, realistically, I mean, should hinder efforts to close Guantanamo at all. You know, in, in some ways it's the opposite. All it's going to do as it has been doing is like, kick the can down the road on the cases moving forward because these issues are going to be litigated and litigated and litigated and litigated and more evidence, right? That the, the commissions are in kind of an abject failure across the board. If, you know, let me put it this way. Closing Guantanamo is not going to be transferring the remaining men out who aren't charged and going to trial and convicting the men who are, right? The second is, it's been clear for years, isn't just a feasible, it's not a feasible possibility. The only way to end those cases is to bleed them out. And I don't think the, you know, the, this torture evidence issue in the end is going to have that significant an impact on that effort. What it does do though if the cases continue, is it puts the administration in the position of having to keep addressing these questions. In October, the administration is going to be at the UN 
sitting before, uh, I think October, sitting before for its uh, review for its compliance with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It will shortly after that be sitting for its review on its compliance with the Convention Against Torture, right? This question is probably going to get put to them there, right? And so it's going to have to answer it there. It keeps an issue alive that, that, that is not a good one, right, for the administration to have to keep addressing um, that doesn't need to be. Because the, you can, the, the administration can end these cases and and just ha- not have to deal with it anymore. And has the Biden administration so far said much about why it doesn't take the plea route? It has not made a substantive comment on that publicly. The White House has said this is not our decision to meddle in. And otherwise, the only comments out of the administration I'm aware of are that they are continuing to work towards closing Guantanamo, including a resolution of the military commission, something to that effect. Can you give us your sense of how well the Biden administration is doing on this issue, as opposed to, say, Obama, who kind of came out with a much clearer like promise to close Guantanamo and of course wasn't able to do so by the end of his administration. So can you compare something like that to something like Biden who seems a little bit more reserved and careful about the way that he's thinking about Guantanamo as a whole and, but yet is kind of still mired in this, are we doing torture evidence or not question? Yes. I think you're right that there's a significant difference in how prominent President Obama and President Biden have made closing Guantanamo as a matter of kind of policy and, and priority. You know, this, that was, this was an issue that was part of Obama's campaign. I think it's a very different time now than it was then. But President Obama, you know, issued an executive order around closing Guantanamo. President Trump essentially pulled it, replaced it with one that says we're going to keep Guantanamo open. And the president has left that in place, at least on the books. To its credit, you know, they've transferred 10 people. I hope a significant additional chunk of transfers are underway. Those aren't happening fast enough. I think there's, you know, a real open question about how effective to date the transfer negotiation process has been at the State Department. I think that it is a much easier political environment now to close Guantanamo than it was during the Obama administration, you know, to the extent there are fears that there would be some huge kind of congressional and, and broader political pushback when men were transferred out, we haven't seen any of that, right? This just isn't, you know, this isn't an issue on voters' minds in 2023. And, you know, I think it, having a the first Black president wanting to be the one who closed Guantanamo and an enormous amount of 
anti-black and anti-Muslim animus directed at him was not a small part of that. So I think the Biden administration has a better environment to do it. And again, to its credit, I think you know, they are the first ones to say, yep, it's clear the commissions have totally failed. We got to figure out another path forward. And they started on that road, right? The prosecution and defense in March of last year spent four weeks getting way down the path of a plea deal. And then there were some questions that the senior administration officials had to answer and they went to them. And, you know, this is more progress that or closer than we'd gotten to a plea in that case ever before, but then it stalled. So, you know, for, for all of the positive momentum that the administration had built around ending the commission system in its entirety, if they were to plead all three cases out, um, we've lost that momentum significantly over the last year and, and change. So we'll, you know, it, I think we'll, we'll see from here. What's the next thing that we should look out for when it comes to torture evidence use in in Guantanamo cases and in general, what are some things you're looking out for when you're considering how well the Biden administration is moving towards the stated goal? Yeah, there are two. Again, the Hambali case that we've talked about a lot, I think that's headed to the DC circuit. So we'll see how the government responds to that case when it gets there. And then uh, there's an issue in Al-Nashri's case all the way back to Al-Nashri around the question of whether kind of the, the more traditional fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine applies to a third party witness statements under torture. So that, that factual scenario is a witness in Nashri's case was tortured, provided information that led to the discovery of a notebook that has incriminating evidence in it. And, you know, kind of whether that longstanding federal court doctrine uh, is going to preclude that torture tainted evidence or not. That's now before the Court of Military Commission review. And so far, you know, again, at least at the military commission prosecutor level, the government is sort of sidestepping the question. And do you think that the Biden administration will come out with this kind of more across the board solution to the torture evidence use problem on its own in the meantime? Or do you think that that's unlikely? I certainly think they should. I think the (laughs) fact that it hasn't happened until now is not a promising sign. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahowell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. 
As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.